Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Thinking Commercially, the business and commercial awareness podcast. My name is Ben Triggs. I'm the marketing director at Bright Network and also the editor of the commercial awareness update. And I am joined again by Chris Stokes, the author and commercial awareness guru. If you are looking for some uh, extra reading during lockdown, I highly recommend getting on Amazon and looking out for Chris's books. So what we'll be covering in this podcast is international trade and tariffs in the context of Brexit, Bitcoin and blockchain, Tesla and Elon Musk's rise, and also the innovation carried out by small businesses every day from cream teas to takeaway beer. Hope you enjoy it. Let's get started. Welcome everybody to the recording, the podcast, Thinking Commercially with myself, Ben Triggs and Chris Stokes. Welcome to you, Chris. Thank you very much, Ben. Very much looking forward to it. Perfect, Chris. So it's actually uh, December was the last uh, recording that we did of this uh, podcast. So how was your Christmas, Chris? I imagine quite quiet given all the restrictions, but was it um, good and refreshing uh, nonetheless? It was. Thank you very much, Ben. And what about you? Yeah, it was It was okay. Very, very quiet, but nice to uh, get a bit of time off. We were speaking earlier, and I think uh, something that you realize once you uh, enter the, the working world, in terms of true time off, that period for a lot of industries is, uh, is very quiet between Christmas and New Year. So a, a really nice time to be able to switch off and um, recharge, the, recharge the batteries, uh, so to speak. Um, but yes, um, welcome, welcome to everyone for the recording of this, uh, this, this podcast. Hope you uh, have enjoyed the first couple of episodes, uh, if you have um, listened to them, or if you are brand new. Um, it's, uh, it's something that we do every single month. Um, about in the middle of the month, but there's no defined uh, time or date um, for students, recent graduates to help you uh, become more commercially aware. Um, if there's any ever any stories that you want to um, let us know about, anything that you'd like us to cover, we do have a LinkedIn group, Thinking Commercially, which you can go on, chat to other people that listen to the podcast and also share your thoughts on what we should be covering. And uh, very excitingly, um, we um, are going to be venturing into Instagram. If you listened last time, we uh, spoke a little bit about um, how we've got LinkedIn, but not so much Instagram. Um, But Lucy um, from the University of Durham, massive thank you to you for getting in touch, is going to support us setting up an Instagram channel. Um, So hopefully um, by the time that the fourth episode is recorded, you'll be able to um, stay up to date with everything going on, lots of the news stories, the new um, podcast on Instagram. Um, In terms of a a few people that have got in touch, thank you so much to everyone that has been. We have um, had topics like Bitcoin, a little bit around international trade, Brexit, um, and lots and lots of um, suggestions. And uh, for all those people that did suggest those, those topics, we have incorporated them into this episode. So if we're ready to go, Chris, are you all ready to go? I am, Ben, yes. Perfect. Let's crack on with the first story. So the first story that we're going to cover this week, and actually it's something that we are covering because so many people have emailed in about it. And also it's been in the news a lot this 
month in the last four years, um, actually probably in the last uh, five or six years, um, to be honest. Um, but it's all about international trade, tariffs, and everything like that. Obviously, there is a context around um, Brexit, the negotiations that happened um, in December and the deal. Um, but what we want to do, we want to move away from Brexit. Everyone talks about it. It's been done to death. Um, but what we want to do is kind of focus on the key terminology, the ideas that are coming out around international trade, tariffs on trade, um, the ideas around import, export, um, and everything like um, that. And then also conclude with a little bit about protectionism and um, whether we feel the world is moving towards more protectionistic in that it's um, not freeing up um, the trade between nations. It's actually closing down um, between um, different nations and their ability to um, trade as freely as possible with each other. Um, so just to give a little bit of context behind that before I bring in in, in Chris, this isn't a new thing. Trade and uh, tariffs on trade have been um, there for forever. It actually um, split the uh, Conservative Party in the early 20th century um, with the sort of tariff reform um, between people that felt that there should be more free trade and people that felt that should they should be the internal markets, British markets should be um, protected against foreign imports. Um, so I guess I guess I want to start with the uh, with you, Chris, around that. What does why do tariffs exist between countries, and um, do they really work in this increasingly globalized world? Well, it, it, it's very interesting because um, I think the starting point is, uh, especially if you're a, a smaller trading country, that the risk is that um, bigger trading countries are going to swamp you. They're going to be exporting to your domestic market because they've got economies of scale. They'll be able to produce goods more cheaply, which will uh, wipe out your domestic economy. And if you're a fairly uh, developing country, then your domestic economy may, may be quite young and some of the businesses may be quite young. So if old established businesses in the developed world um, export to you and undercut your domestic prices, it can seem quite frightening economically. But the interesting thing about this, the starting point intellectually was a guy called uh, David Ricardo, who was an economist, uh, 17th, 18th century economist. And he argued that what countries ought to do, and what's interesting about this is it applies to us individually. He said countries ought to specialize. Each country was, was good at one or more things, but couldn't be good at everything. And if you specialized, you could then rely on other countries who are good at what they did to provide those particular goods and products that you yourself as a country didn't make. And because they were really good at it, they provide really good quality at a cheaper price. And you yourself would have a specialization, which meant that your goods would be the best in the world and probably the, the cheapest for the quality. So everybody could benefit. And, and this one thing that I'm not an economist by background, but one of the interesting things about this, which I hadn't realized for a long time, is that global wealth is not a zero-sum game. By that, I mean when one part of the world gets rich, it doesn't necessarily mean that another part of the world therefore has to get poor. In actual fact, the global economy can pull everybody up by our, our, our bootlaces, as it were, so that the world collectively can get wealthier, which is quite an I think that's a really eye-opening idea, really optimistic idea. And, and if you like, free trade contributes to that. Now, uh, there were uh, uh, 
critics of Ricardo who said that he'd overlooked things like technological change and the mobility of capital. But he was very much against, against protectionism. He didn't think that if as a nation you tried to protect your domestic markets and were, were, were unwilling to specialize, that, that over time that would actually serve your domestic economy well. So I, I see that as the starting point, Ben, I think. What do you think? Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And I think on the point of um, protectionism, um, something actually we were discussing a little bit um, via email before we did the recording, um, is it's this idea that we've seen examples, possibly people have alluded to in the in the media, that Brexit or even the um, US-China trade war, people talking about that, has been seen as um, an increase or a move back towards protectionism. But actually, in actual fact, I think that the world is still continuing on this path of becoming more free trade, becoming more open to trading between nations and seeing, as you say, Chris, the benefit of um, being able to trade between nations and actually everyone collectively getting richer. So Chris, I'm interested to find out what your um, thoughts are around the US-China trade war um, and the signs that we are possibly moving towards a more protectionist world. Um, well, I, I think a, a lot of things internationally get labelled as uh, protectionism or as trade wars. In the case of the US and China, I, I think on the US's side, there are concerns about alleged IP infringement and, and possible hybrid warfare, this idea of threats to cybersecurity. But I, w what I like to do is to kind of look beyond that. And when you look at the World Trade Organization, this was mentioned a lot in the, the run-up to Brexit about trading on WTO terms. I, I think it's actually an extraordinary organization because it's got over 160 members. It, it was set up in the 90s and uh, it's now got over 160 members and its terms cover... 98% of all international trade. And basically what its terms say are, you've got to treat all other trading partners equally. So if you impose a tariff on, on goods from one, you've got to impose the same sort of tariff on, on the other. And that's called uh, most favored nation. If you have free trade deals, then those override in connection with those particular countries you've got free trade deals with. But also it's got a, a non-discrimination principle called national treatment, which basically says that you, you need to allow um, uh, other people into your country to the extent that they allow your, your workers into theirs. So I, I actually find behind the headlines and, and there's a huge amount of global trade going on, which is not newsworthy because it works well. So it's very easy, to, I think, to look at the headlines and think, oh, my goodness, everything is closing down. Whereas actually, I think everything is opening up, actually. Um, so I'm, I'm very optimistic. And, and the fact that the WTO has so many members and so much of trade is done under its terms, I see as, as really good things, actually. Amazing. Always positive, Chris. That's what I love about uh, coming on these podcasts. Um, you always get a very, very positive um, view of the world, which um, um, is uh, is always good to hear, especially at a time like this. Um, there's a couple of bits. I want to move back slightly to the UK. As I say, we're trying to avoid the, the B word um, as much as possible. Um, but people talk about um, the UK as an importing nation, especially when it comes to, to goods. Um, when you hear that kind of terminology, what should 
students and graduates? What should they be thinking? Um, what does that actually mean in, in real terms? Again, I'm not an economist, so I'm going to give you my own, my own noddy explanation. But there, there is a link here with the amount of uh, borrowing that the UK government, like other governments, have gone in for to, to fund uh, uh, mitigating factors during the pandemic. And when, when people say we're an importing nation, it means we tend to import more than we, than we sell, at least when it, when it comes to, to, to goods. Although, interestingly, there's, um, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a view about that we're not really a manufacturing country anymore. And that's actually incorrect. We've got some fantastic engineering companies that are, are world leaders and they export all, all over the world. Um, and, and so anyway, come, come, coming back to this idea that we import more than we sell, long term, that's not a good thing because ultimately it means that we're using foreign capital to support us. But that, that's, if you like, a long-term secular trend. It's a bit like saying, well, the government has borrowed three to 400 billion for the pandemic. It's going to have to pay it off. Well, yes, but that, that only has to be paid off over, over decades, as it were. And the chances are that inflation means that the real value of that debt's going to come down. So the fact that we are at the moment an importing nation, I, I see that as a, a long-term trend that we need to mitigate. But of course, we have been mitigating it through export of financial and other services at which we are a global leader. Amazing. And actually on to the point of financial services. So a lot of people, I'm sure, um, listening to the, um, to, the, to the podcast are interested in careers in financial services, professional services. Um, and there's been a lot of comments in the media over the last um, three weeks looking at that deal that the um, UK and the EU did um, over this winter and saying, well, it's all very well for the goods which are covered in the deal, but actually for financial services, nothing's covered. Is that uh, a worry at all? Is that something that should be focused on, Chris? I, I don't think so. Um, the, the thing about um, goods is that they are physical, they're tangible, they uh, have to have um, product descriptions on them, you need to know where they originated, what they're made of. And all, all of this needs, needs regulation. It, it requires rules and it needs checking, whereas financial services are intangible and they're, they're delivered you know, in cyberspace immediately. So you don't need the same panoply of regulation. So the fact that financial services weren't covered uh, in that deal did, didn't strike me as odd. And there, there are other reasons why it's not odd. Uh, it's because the financial services industry in this country has been preparing for this for the last four years. And essentially, if you want to uh, continue to providing financial services in the EU, you, you set up shop there, which is why a lot of fund managers have uh, opened offices in, for example, Dublin. Um, and another thing to remember is that uh, London is, is a wholesale financial market. In other words, it's not a retail market. And most EU financial regulation, as indeed this applies to our own regulation here, is to protect individuals uh, who might be investors in the financial markets. And essentially, EU regulation means that uh, financial service providers in London can't provide those financial services to retail investors, to individuals in the EU. Well, London, the city, is a wholesale market. It doesn't really offer retail services. And again, the most affected people are fund managers who 
distribute funds in the EU. And if they're doing that from Dublin, they fall within EU regulation. The funny enough, the 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 I, I don't see the city being threatened particularly by uh, trading in, for example, euro-denominated instruments going to, to say, Paris or Frankfurt, as much as by being threatened by New York, because New York is a very deep market. And if the and what investors look for in financial markets is what's called liquidity, the ab- ability to move in and out of markets fairly quickly. And if any of our liquidity in London uh, leaches away to Paris and Frankfurt, it 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 won't it, it won't worry us in terms of the business that's lost to those uh, uh, very much smaller EU markets. The worry will be whether that depresses our liquidity. So investors globally will tend to use New York in preference to London. So I'm not at all fussed about financial services being excluded. In fact, I think very interestingly, in the last fortnight, the the UK has said that it's going to uh, allow the trading of Swiss-listed companies. Now, the EU banned the trading of Swiss-listed companies because the EU used that as a tactic to try to get Switzerland to renegotiate elements of its trade deal. And when Switzerland refused, uh, the EU said, right, we're not going to allow the the trading of your uh, public Swiss companies in the EU. And one of the first things that the city has said is, well, we are going to allow that. So the reason for saying that is that at the very point where uh, the UK uh, left the EU, we had equivalents. In other words, our financial regulation was identical to that in the EU, but already it's beginning to, to move apart. And the one thing that financial services had been concerned about was, would we get equivalent recognition in the EU? The disav- and, and that simply means that if your financial regulation is the same as in the EU, then you can trade in the EU. The trouble with that is that it can be withdrawn at a month's notice, which is far too short a time for a bank or financial institution to arrange the way it does its business. So I'm getting the sense already that in the city, they're beginning to say, actually, we're not terribly fussed about equivalents in the EU because those of our financial institutions that need to trade there are already based there. And for the rest, what we're going to do actually is is plough our own furrow, as it were, and move away from having identical regulation to that of the EU to allow us, for example, to trade Swiss companies and start to do other things which will make us a more attractive financial market than the EU. And the last thing to say is this is what the city has been doing for the last 200 years. It is built on creativity, innovation, very smart people, which is why it continues to attract very smart people, which is why, no, I'm not fussed about the exclusion of financial services from from that trade deal. Excellent. Thank you um, so much for that. And I think there's also, if you take a step back and think about Britain's place in the world, and let's say the city's place in the world, the financial institutions and the city itself, there are are two points to, to be made on it. First of all, it is set up so well to continue as a powerhouse within the financial space. And the second point is that London, yeah, sure, at the moment, everything's locked down and um, it's uh, whether you're working anywhere, to be honest, it's pretty much the same experience. But London is a place where people want to go to. They enjoy the culture. They enjoy the restaurants, the mini golf, whatever it is, but all of the things that London can offer as well. And there's a lot of been a lot of talk over the last four or five years about potential different cities where people will move to. 
but there is a human aspect of it. They're not, not everyone that works in finance is machines that can just do their work wherever. They do have families, they do have wants to socialize and stuff like that. So I think as it'll be interesting to see what happens as uh, restrictions are lifted in the pandemic. But I do think the setup that London has and also the infrastructure more broadly than just finance um, does uh, enable it to, uh, to be that kind of powerhouse uh, continuing moving forward. We're going to leave that story just there. Um, hopefully that gives you a bit of indication and um, hopefully it wasn't too Brexit heavy. I'm sure you've heard far too much about um, Brexit over the last few years. So the second story that we are going to cover this week, and it's something that, again, lots of people have emailed in to us about, is Bitcoin. Um, If you've been reading the tech or the financial press over the last few weeks, you'll know that it's um, risen to astronomical levels. The value of a a, a single Bitcoin is, uh, I think, something like um, $38,500 at the moment. Um, and it keeps on rising and rising and rising um, as uh, as time goes on. But we want to to decipher why potentially it is rising so much, um, whether it could be deemed a, a bubble, whether it possibly could uh, could could pop and crash and uh, prices drop again. Uh, but then look a bit more wider at um, our, our, our thirst, our want to do maybe more trading, more investing. Um, especially in the last year in the um, lockdown. It's uh, bred a, uh, an environment of uh, people doing more and more uh, of their own sort of investing trading as well. So I'll look a little bit at that. Um, so, um, Chris, I guess the obvious question, um, why do you think that Bitcoin has seen uh, its value just um, soar through the roof in the last um, year or so? Well, I think the answer, with any luck, are all of you who are listening to us, because uh, Bitcoin is very, very popular with with millennials. And um, what's interesting about it is, is that what what commentators are saying is that this could become a serious currency. There's a guy called Paul Tudor Jones who predicted the crash way back in 1987, uh, and he's saying that really Bitcoin reflects the coming digitization of currency everywhere. Now, although people like the Bank of England have said that they see it as unsuited to to payments where certainty of value matters, what is beginning to happen to make Bitcoin really interesting is a coincidence of two things. One is Bitcoin being treated as a store of value. So that's a bit like Bitcoin as gold. Is, Is Bitcoin something that you can buy because it will protect the value of the money that you put into it. But that in itself is not sufficient to make uh, anything tradable have long-term value. It needs to be useful. And so the second thing you need is for Bitcoin to be a payment currency. And PayPal's announcement that it was going to uh, allow payments to be made in Bitcoin was really, really crucial because where you've got that coincidence of uh, something as a store of value and also as a payment facilitator, that's where you've got something that could have long-term prospects. One of the reasons I think why Bitcoin has been popular recently is because um, very little investment is providing any sort of return at all. There's, it's what people say in the markets, there's very little yield, you know, interest rates are very low. 
And at the same time, there's a possible risk in future of inflation. And gold has traditionally been the, the asset that investors move to when interest rates are very low, because gold has no yield as such, but neither does Bitcoin. But also it's an inflation hedge. And so I think all of those reasons are behind Bitcoin's popularity. But there is something else, which I think is why it's very popular amongst young people. When you think of currencies, they are created by governments and central banks. And at the moment, and one, one uh, market participant uh, used the term cash is trash, meaning that the value of money in terms of the return it provides has been crushed by central bank intervention. And central banks, uh, in order to uh, uh, control inflation, manipulate interest rates. And the idea of, of Bitcoin, there's something quite appealing about the fact that this is outside any government's control. And I think that combination of factors is what is what has made it appealing, especially amongst the young. Amazing. And I must say, I think um, a lot of our listeners might be into the uh, Gen Z category as as, as well. So I, I presume uh, um, millennials, I'm sure there are millennials listening. So I'm, I'm sure there is some um, people from Gen Z as well. But I think generally more, more, more pertinently in that kind of age category between the age of 18 and about um, 35, uh, you've seen sort of Bitcoin. Um, rise in popularity. Um, I think some people want to uh, get in on the act. I haven't been uh, going into the office, as you can imagine, very much, but I've seen Bitcoin advertising on the on sort of tube um, when I've been going into the office now. And um, it's definitely something which, uh, which uh, um, is getting um, more prevalence in terms of people thinking about trading it. And for the reasons, I guess, Chris has outlined. Um, the re- one thing that I was interested by was when you were talking through that was your comparison between Bitcoin and I guess other cryptocurrency and gold, because gold is considered a safe haven investment, basically that it's got a stored value. So investors will um, put their money there if they expect there's going to be some market volatility or they're worried that their um, investment in stocks or other um, assets will uh, likely uh, go down. Um, So, Given that Bitcoin has, uh, it went up to almost 20,000 in 2017, then back down to three and a half thousand dollars in early 2019, and then back up now. Why do you think people are seeing it as similar to gold? That, that is a really good question. And, and one of the issues, um, uh, when, we, when in the last story we were talking about London and the depth of the market, one of the big issues with Bitcoin is that actually only a very small proportion of the 21 million odd digital coins in existence are ever traded. And and also, as everybody will know, uh, Bitcoin is very divisible. So you can end up holding a tiny, tiny fraction of of one Bitcoin. But because there there is very limited trade in Bitcoin, it means that this accentuates price spikes and volatility. And those are things actually that put off longer term investors. And one another reason why it's been accepted is because there are institutional investors who are increasingly investing a small proportion of their assets in it. But they won't do that unless the market becomes, becomes deeper. And, and this, Ben, this really ties in with what you were talking about, the 
the idea of of people trading more. There, there's been a, a, a massive increase because of lockdown of people sitting at their screens during the day and basically trading in the market. And, and if the people who do that are known as intraday traders. In other words, they get up in the morning, they start trading at the end of the day, they hope to have made more than, than, than they've lost. And I think part of that desire to trade has, has focused on, on Bitcoin because if you're going to buy shares in a company, you need to do quite a lot of research into the company and so on. Whereas with Bitcoin, it's there or it isn't. You either trade it or not. And one of the problems with that is that it's what genuine long-term investors call the, the greater fool theory. In other words, you buy something on the assumption that tomorrow a greater fool than you will come along and buy it from you at a higher price. And that's why I think Bitcoin is still in the category of speculation rather than in the category of investment. Great stuff. And to get really precise on it, I think you spoke about um, investing and you've spoken a little bit about um, day trading as well. I think a lot of people, especially if maybe they're not um, doing kind of economics and have a community around them at university that um, are sort of teaching them or they're learning together about trading. What do you actually, what are people trading? What do you mean by someone that's uh, day trading? What are they looking to trade and what are they looking to achieve other than obviously um, making more money than they started the day with? Well, to tell you the truth, that is all they're looking to do. They They evaluate everything in terms of, Am I going to make more money by selling this than I will have to spend buying it? And can I find somebody else who will buy it off me at a greater price? I mean, uh, for investing, I think the starting point is a guy called Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett, who's regarded as you know, the most famous investor in the world. He, he studied under Benjamin Graham and he worked for him. And Benjamin Graham had a way of valuing companies in particular. He would he would uh, look at the value of their assets, their, their plant, their machinery. And if the share price was substantially below that, he would invest in the company because he felt that the underlying, what he called the book value of their assets was much greater than the share price. The, the problem with that approach is that some companies are actually underpriced in the market because they're very, not very good companies. And when, when um, Warren Buffett started following what Benjamin Graham did. He was joined in Berkshire Hathaway by a guy called Charlie Munger, who is a, a Californian lawyer, who said to, to Warren Buffett, why don't you just buy good companies? Don't buy companies that are undervalued just because they're undervalued. Buy, buy companies that are undervalued, but which are good companies. And so the Warren Buffett approach to investing is very much to look at the long-term aspects of a company before you buy shares in it and to regard he, he goes in for what's called whole business investing assume i'm going to buy the whole company do, do i want to do this and what benjamin graham said and it took me a long time to work out what this meant and it's the last thing i'll say about this because i can be very boring on this subject he said he said in the short term the stock market is a beauty parade but in the long term, it's a weighing machine. And it took me a long time to work out what he meant. And by the way, this comes from a book he wrote called The Intelligent Investor, which Warren Buffett says is the greatest book on investment ever written, which I have to agree with. What Benjamin Graham meant was in the short term, shares are a beauty parade. It's a matter of fashion, which looks the best. But in the long term, 
The stock market is a weighing machine. If a company has real, real substance over the long term, it will get bigger and heavier. And so I think that's a very good way of, of, of differentiating trading, which is very short-term beauty parade stuff from long-term investing, which is I'm going to invest in businesses that long-term make things or provide services that people really want and so long-term, their prospects are very, very good. That's how I see the difference between trading or speculating and investing. Amazing. Before we, we go off on, on this point, obviously, um, we've spoken a little bit about Bitcoin, bringing more attention to it, possibly, um, possibly getting you interested in investing and uh, trading. Uh, but there was a very interesting comment, I think, over the last uh, day or two from the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, that said investors should be quote, prepared to lose all their money uh, should, they, should they be investing in crypto assets. Um, basically meaning that there is a high likely, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's some of the other um, cryptocurrencies, that um, there is a, a chance they could completely collapse um, and money can be lost. So not to sound like anyone's um, parent or, or, or guardian or supervisor or anything like that, but I think there is um, make sure that you never risk as uh, more than you can uh, afford to lose with with all of these things um, and uh, probably not putting all of your student loan into into various bits of uh, trading and investment. Uh, before we end this uh, story, Chris, I wanted uh, to quickly talk about something which I know that you're uh, probably more excited about than possibly um, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is the use of um, blockchain. Um, within um, professional services, within transactions. Um, yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about that and why maybe you're excited about what the future could hold within this space? I, I know that uh, uh, Bitcoin and blockchain are often mentioned in the same breath, but I do see them as completely different because blockchain is basically, it's a ledger. It's a way of recording a transaction between parties in, in a way that itself cannot be hacked and is immutable. So basically, blo blockchain is, if you like, a, a way of registering transactions, which is completely safe and, and secure. And a lot of financial institutions have put a lot of resource into investigating blockchain and seeing whether it works for them. And it's probably worth saying that Financial institutions are very good at devising um, ways of trading between each other, for example, through private markets. And blockchain, I see as an example of that, of, of um, uh, putting in place a system that will make your transactions more secure and actually make it much easier to keep a record of them. And I see that as being very different from, from cryptocurrencies. Amazing. And yeah, there's lots of stats and you can look online. There's various different reports. Um, I looked at one from um, KPMG recently about the potential benefits, the potential impact on um, reduction of errors um, when looking at transaction, the increase of uh, efficiency as well. Um, so definitely something which um, is definitely keen and exciting within the industry. I think we'll leave that story there. Um, I think you could talk about it for the whole hour if you talk about blockchain and Bitcoin, but hopefully it's given you a little bit of an introduction, also got you thinking about trading and investing, um, especially if you don't do sort of a tech 
degree or have studied for a tech degree, um, sometimes it's good to be able to dip your toe in the water, get that broad understanding of what's going on in the markets. So when you do come to things like interviews or starting in your early career, you do have that kind of sense of knowledge um, and be able to talk about it with a little more confidence. So the third story that we are going to cover today is something that hit the newspapers. Well, it's been hitting the newspapers for the last few months, but especially over the last week, because you might have read in the news that Elon Musk, um, for a brief four-day period, I believe, um, in the previous week, um, was named the richest person alive and had a fortune worth um, about $190 billion, um, based on... Um, Tesla, the shares in his company, which I think he owns around 20% of, um, with Tesla's worth um, hitting about uh, just under $800 um, billion. Um, but I guess what I wanted to talk about is talk a little bit about um, Tesla itself and what makes it a very unique, I think, Chris, that was the word you used, a very unique um, company uh, in itself, um, but also look a little bit wider about how companies are valued and um, where people can find value in, in the market. It is linked to our previous story, um, but hopefully um, it gives you a bit more of a real world um, sense of uh, what's going on with this um, incredible company, which is at the moment growing and growing in value. Um, despite the fact maybe not well nowhere near producing as many as many cars as its uh, closest rivals um so chris again another start a uh, very simple question to start us off why is tesla valued so highly given that in terms of production and the amount of revenue it makes it, it doesn't compare anywhere close to its uh, the big car manufacturers I should explain that uh, this business is about very unique is a joke between Ben and me, because many of you will know that the word unique, uh, because it means uh, one off, one of a kind, you can't be very unique, you're either unique or you're not unique. But sometimes one just has to go into, um, in, into extremes to discuss these things. And Tesla, Tesla is really quite strange, because I, I think, I think it's, current value is the it's a confluence of factors it's many things coming together on the one hand it's a car maker and car makers are very much old world industry you know and and actually the the image that car makers and cars have is is not that modern you know in the old days cars were regarded as status symbols and you had programs like top gear and in car enthusiasts called petrol heads none of this is terribly forward-looking. So what Tesla has come has done is come along and introduce electric cars. And this has coincided with the ESG movement and concern about climate change. So uh, Elon Musk really caught, caught the zeitgeist, I think. And because of the, because the electric element, Tesla is often views, viewed as a kind of quasi-tech stock and uh, that, I think, has also been, been uh, to its advantage. And also, although it's in a relatively old-fashioned industry, car making, the great thing about electric cars is they're just not as complicated as traditional petrol or diesel cars. So actually, you can, you can um, get a reputation as a good manufacturer because there are fewer things that, that can go wrong. Uh, allied to that... I think electric cars are a step towards driverless cars. And once we, once we um, 
uh, hit driverless cars, something that Ben and I were talking about in, in uh, the last podcast about hitting peak stuff where actually people don't want to own as much stuff as they have in the past. Once, once you get driverless cars, the idea of owning a car is going to go out of the window because it'll be much more like a taxi. You want to go somewhere, driverless car comes up, you summon it, you get in, takes you where you want to go, you get out and you're not really interested in that car anymore. So I think all of this has come together, together with having uh, a charismatic uh, frontman like Elon Musk, who happens also to be interested in space. So there's this very forward-looking, spacey, slightly sci-fi, electric. All of this, I think, has appealed to investors because what investors do when they look at businesses to invest in is they're always looking to the future. And uh, with Amazon, for example, Amazon was loss-making for a long time uh, and started off as an online bookseller and now does a lot of other things. But those investors who have stuck with Amazon have seen the business come right and have seen it really flourish and, and, and grow. And so institutional investors in Tesla see it as a disruptor. It's one of those businesses that comes along and just changes everything. And there aren't many of them. And it can be quite a rocky ride while they're reaching that position. But I think that's why Tesla's price has been so high, because people are looking ahead rather than looking at what the business is necessarily today. Absolutely. And talking of that, I think uh, there's been lots of stats. I think there's also been a, a term coined called Tesla heirs. So people that basically have invested in Tesla early enough, maybe not even that much. So, you know, it could be a case of a couple of grand um, and actually ended up depending on when they got in. Um, now finding themselves if they've held their stock, which is always uh, tricky to do if you start seeing going up and worried about going uh, going down again. But if they've held their stock. Um, they are uh, particularly wealthy, wealthy people now. Um, but what actually I really want to kind of drill down on was we're talking about Tesla being kind of very unique. We're talking about Tesla's uh, potential, uh, Elon Musk being... Um, you almost talk about it a little bit like a uh, front man of a, a rock band, I guess the Liam Gallagher of the um, electric car world or the space world. Um, but what I sort of, I guess I want to really focus on is that it's, it's valued now, or when it was last week, it was valued at around 1700 times its earnings. Um, when you hear stuff like that, because that's frequently talked about, what does that sort of mean in reality? first of all, to cover off. And also, it's so high compared to even other tech stocks. And um, where do investors normally look for kind of a sweet spot in terms of, uh, in terms of getting that growth from their investments? Well, it's a very interesting question, because I, I, I think one has to put the stock price of Tesla in very much the, 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 the bubble category, a bit like Bitcoin at the moment. Generally speaking, in investors, are, are they one of the ways in which they value companies is called is through what's called price earnings. So, uh, price earnings really means uh, uh, if I buy this stock at this price, at what point will the earnings that the company produces pay me back for the money that I've invested. And price earnings varies from sector to sector. There are some sectors where price earnings are relatively low, so four, four to five. So price earnings of four to five means that if you buy the stock today, it'll take four to five years of annual earnings to, to pay you back 
the amount of money that you've invested. And you would find uh, um, uh, extractive industries, uh, ore miners, for example, falling into that category. But the, the, more, the more the business becomes asset light and is more of a know-how business, then the price earnings can really shoot up. Most, most businesses, and this is a gross generalization because it varies from sector to sector, but most businesses trade on a P of between 15 and 30. That would, that would seem about right. Occasionally, especially with tech stocks, the P is, is much higher than that. But the, the other thing that investors look for are, are um, ROI, return on investment. So uh, how good is the company at generating revenue from the amount of capital that it's had invested? And something else that investors look at is what's called the uh, profit to cash conversion ratio, because you'll probably be aware that profit is actually a, a kind of arithmetic ex exercise. It doesn't actually mean cash. It just means have, have, has, has the, the, the arithmetic figure for your income been greater than the arithmetic figure for your cost of sales and cost of production. But you need to convert that arithmetic figure into actual cash that you've received before it becomes useful in the business and useful to investors. And a lot of investors look at that profit to cash conversion ratio. And unless it's pretty high, they tend to think that a business is good at producing paper profit, but not necessarily translating that, that into cash. And of course, taking this back to Tesla, Tesla's had difficulty in the past meeting its, its uh, uh, predicted uh, production output quotas, and also it's had difficulty from quarter to quarter in actually producing a profit. And then you've got to ask yourself, has that profit actually turned into cash, which can be paid to investors? So I, I see Tesla as being very much in that category of what are called unicorns, although it's not a unicorn. Unicorns are generally tech companies valued at over a billion, which obviously Tesla is, is far more than that, but which are still private companies, but not producing any viable income. But private equity investors are invested in them in the expectation that in due course they will produce cash and they will produce profit. And I think both with Tesla, the jury is out. And I suspect that the price it's at at the moment is very speculative, partly because there are very few other places at the moment with yields so low where you can make an investment and, and get a decent return. Amazing. I think hopefully that um, covers it off. And um, I know a lot of people um, are interested in Tesla as a business and Elon Musk as, a, as an entrepreneur. Um, but just one stat to leave you on this, on this story and um, just to put it into a bit of context, hopefully uh, we've put that across. But um, when Tesla's value hit um, $775 billion um, last week, it was valued higher than Toyota, Volkswagen, Hyundai, General Motors and Ford combined so it just goes to show that actually you know this speculation this uh idea of having something which is um driving forward into the future not to uh inadvertent pun there unfortunately um for everyone listening but um but driving towards the future producing something which um could be um you know, rolled out across nations, across the world, um, and uh, and have a real impact in the future. It shows how highly they can be valued by investors. Right, we're going to leave that story there. I um, hope you found it interesting, and we're going to crack on with our final story. 
So as you know, if you have listened to the podcast in the past, the fourth story that we cover, we cover it in maybe a little less detail and it's a little bit more lighthearted um, just to end the podcast. Um, still boosting your commercial awareness, um, but also hopefully uh, something that can be enjoyable, maybe not quite as heavy as some of the stuff that we've covered in the previous three stories. And actually today, the title, I've, wrote, I've written my notes down, the title of the lighthearted story is Cream Teas and takeaway beer, um, which um, I don't think actually summarizes it completely, but does sound um, um, wonderful, hopefully, uh, for for you listening at, uh, at home. Um, but actually what we want to talk about is the importance of innovation for small businesses. And actually, small businesses and big businesses as well, but small businesses have been innovating for years. And, you know, there is that idea that you need to be innovating to not just thrive, but actually survive as a, as a small business in local communities or national businesses that are competing with um, the bigger blue chips. But something that kind of sparks my interest and um, it's always good at the moment, I think it's quite difficult to get away from pretty bad news on various websites and in the media. Um, but something um, about a story from um, Wilkin and Son, the, the jam makers, this was on the BBC, um, that uh, make uh, jam that their revenues are getting massively cut because they normally supply a lot to the hotel trade. Um, and obviously less people staying in hotels, hotel shut, um, seeing a massive dip in their revenues um, due to lockdown. Um, but actually they slightly pivoted their businesses and started doing delivery cream teas and they sold i think 10,000 at the back end of uh, of of last year so a brilliant way that they've been able to innovate to survive what can be a, a pretty awful time for a lot of small businesses and um, but i know it's something chris that you are passionate about and also believe that this sort of small business and how they operate how they innovate is crucial and fundamental to commercial awareness overall and, and absolutely. I mean, there's a, a real risk uh, in listening to the sort of stuff that Ben and I talk about, that you think commercial awareness is just about you know, macroeconomic events and big business. Whereas my, my belief is that the best way to kind of get a handle on commercial awareness is just look at the small businesses around you and ask yourself, and obviously this is, you know, post-pandemic, as it were, how do they make money? What's their USP? Why is it that they have a, a, a customer base? And so I think look, looking small is just as important as, as looking at, at big trends. And, and I was reminded of this because um, and some of you may know that by background, I'm a lawyer and I've spent most of my career in and around you know, the, the large law firms, the global law firms. Uh, but for 10 years, I, I was... Um, an external tutor on an MBA for lawyers set up by Nottingham Law School. And, and this is going back a long time now. This is going back 25 years or so. Um, and, and there's nothing else like it in, in the market. And, and when this MBA for lawyers was set up, the assumption was that the people who would come on it would all be from the largest law firms because they were the biggest legal businesses. They need to learn a lot about management. And we as the faculty were stunned when actually most of the people who turned up were from high street firms. And what we discovered was in these high street law firms, there was an incredible amount of innovation going on. These were people who knew that unless they went out and got business, they would not eat. Their families would not eat. And so they were very entrepreneurial, very attuned to their local markets, incredibly imaginative. And a number of them were millionaires because this was at a time when, when 
conveyancing, the buying and selling of flats and houses, was still quite an old-fashioned sort of involved business. And what, what a lot of these guys did was to sweep in and, and create conveyancing factories and make a lot of money doing so. And that really opened my eyes to how innovative small businesses can be. And, and we, we used to hold the program over long weekends. And on the Sunday before everybody went, went back home, we had to say to them, when you go into the office on Monday, for goodness sake, be careful about proselytizing all of this stuff because you will really scare your colleagues because you will be full of brilliant ideas about how you're going to transform this high street firm of solicitors. And it will absolutely terrify them. But that's what I loved about that, that idea that you get, you get innovation and commercial creativity amongst the smallest businesses and not just amongst the large ones. I completely agree. And something um, from my own personal experience, obviously coming at this from quite a different angle I'm um, in marketing um, uh, for, for Bright Network, obviously. Um, but one thing that has taught me kind of a lot about marketing is a completely different product. It's actually a physical product, um, unlike Bright Network, is, uh, is a company called Rebellion Brewery. They're about my favorite, favorite brand. I feel like I'm mentioning various companies of cream teas and beer, basically, probably trying to just get some freebies from them. If I mentioned them, I can do sort of a deal with them for next time. But no, um, no deal uh, at all. But um, just looking at how they have operated for many years and how they have um, turned what is a very small brewery in, in High Wycombe, where, I'm, where, where I came from, um, and being able to build it out and build it out. Um, and you see there, you go to their shop on a, on a Friday night before the weekend, everyone's buying in sort of beers for the their kind of local ales for the, for the weekend. And um, actually how they've set up basically like a, a McDonald's style drive through um, to allow people to still uh, enjoy their beers. They're probably not supplying quite as much to the pub trades that they would normally do, um, but be, allow people to still um, get their supply of, of beer from home in like the safest way possible. And I think um, you can learn so much from the innovation of kind of small business and looking at businesses which start with almost kind of very little and build their way up. Obviously, for some of these huge corporates, that was many years ago, decades, possibly even centuries ago. Whereas what you can see in smaller businesses and local businesses is ones that may be set up very recently um, that are really listening to their customer, really understanding the needs of their market and uh, delivering something on a local level. And that is really important, as Chris has said, to um, commercial um, awareness. One final thing I want to quickly pick up on was your thoughts in it feels like a lot of smaller businesses and very modern businesses have been able to tap into uh, a key trend that people maybe are going away from the bigger corporates, especially when it comes to products and stuff like that. Um, but looking for a bit of a, a quality experience when they purchase, whether it's mainly goods, I would say in this example, um, and not necessarily thinking about which is the, which is the cheapest. And I think in some ways like lockdown has um, made a, uh, extended that sort of uh, feeling. What are your thoughts about that finally, Chris? Well, I, I, I think this is a, a really good trend, the, the idea that we need to be conscientious co consumers. And, and I think but, but partly it was brought on by thinking about the, the role of the UK in, in the world uh, uh, post the EU and should, should we actually um, uh, eat more of our local produce, also worrying about, you know, uh, how, how, how many... Uh, foodstuffs are, are brought in by air and and is that good for 
carbon footprint, for example. And so uh, because I, I see it as being very much part of uh, concern with climate change, the ESG movement in terms of looking at businesses that, that, that um, uh, 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 follow environmental rules and uh, treat their stakeholders properly and have proper governance in place. I think what this shows is that we as individuals can have more impact on the world around us than, than we think. And that what we buy and how we buy it has an absolutely direct impact. And, and so one of the good things about this, and I think it has been, it, it's a byproduct of, of lockdown, maybe a good one, is making us look uh, more locally than we otherwise would at where things come from and wanting to buy things. Because if we don't buy them, those businesses will no longer exist. And it's no good saying, oh, that was a lovely little greengrocer's. Unfortunately, it's gone out of business. Did you ever go there? No, no, I didn't, you know. And so I, th I, I think what's great about this is it means that we as individuals can have more impact than possibly we might think we might. I think that is where we should leave it for this week. I think um, uh, what, a, what a fantastic thing. We've talked to, talked about um, some of the big, as uh, Chris said, macroeconomic and big companies, but uh, leaving it on the small companies and also the impact that we can make. As always, Chris, it was an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for your time to join us on this um, podcast. Are you still enjoying it? Hopefully you are. Hopefully there will be a, a fourth episode to come. Hugely. Absolutely, Ben. I'm really, really enjoying it. Perfect. And we hope that you are enjoying it at um, home as well. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Thinking Commercially. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got lots out of it. Um, as discussed in the podcast, you can head across to our LinkedIn group, Thinking Commercially, with lots of great stuff on there to boost your commercial awareness and also your opportunity to share what stories you want to hear from us. Other than that, hope you're having a good January and do stay safe.